Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. The Church in Earnest came out in 1848 by John Angel James. This particular chapter is called The Causes That Operate to Repress This Earnestness of Religion in the Church. Such a state of the Church as that to which this volume refers cannot be rationally looked for without intense solicitude, importunate and incessant prayer, resolute effort and both a vigorous and watchful opposition to hostile influence. This malign influence is exerted in various ways, and from various quarters. Of course, the chief hindrance is from the remains of corruption in the hearts of every Christian, and the efforts of Satan, and these must be overcome by a more determined and severe mortification of our members which are upon the earth in a more unrelenting crucifixion of the flesh with the affections and lust thereof, as well as by sobriety and vigilance of mind, in resisting the temptations of our adversary, the devil. But now I refer more especially to certain impediments arising out of the state both of the church and of the world. Number one. Perhaps we may consider the easy access to church fellowship which is now so generally granted, is one cause of the deterioration of the piety of this day. I am aware that the admission of members to our churches is a subject of perplexing difficulty. It is not at our option to make the door of ingress to the church and of approach to the table of the Lord either wider or narrower than it is made by him to whom both the spiritual house and the table for the inmates belong. But the difficulty lies in knowing exactly what is his will on the subject in each particular case as it occurs. For my own part, it is a heavy burden to determine upon the point. No part of my duty is so perplexing. I am afraid on the one hand to repel the true convert and to deprive him of the means of nourishment and growth, and on the other of admitting the self-deceived emptying thus the better of his delusion and destruction. Two consequences result from the reception of unsuitable persons to communion in the church. They not only are confirmed themselves in their false views of their own case, but by their low state of pious feeling, their total destitution of it, their worldly-mindedness and laxity, they corrupt others and exert a deadening influence upon the whole community. Their example is a source of corruption to very many who are allured by it, who are allured by it into all their secularities and fashionable follies. One family of such worldly and lukewarm professors is often a grief to the pastor, a lamentation to the spiritual part of the flock, a snare to many of the less pious, and a reproach to the church at large. Too many of this description find their way, 
in these days of easy profession into all our churches. I have arrived, therefore, to conclusion. Did our tendency in this day is to make the standard for admission to church membership too low? In the test of spiritual fitness, too easy. The consequence of this is that our churches have many in them who are professors only, and who exert an unfavorable influence over those of whom we hold better things. They benumb by their torpid touch those with whom they come in contact. It is probable that there is no pastor who, upon looking round upon his church, does not see many members who, if they had manifested no more concern when they made application for membership than they now do, he would have never thought of receiving them into communion, while they indeed would never have applied for it themselves. How much is it to be wished that such persons, if they do not improve, would dissolve their connection with the church, since their remaining in it only corrupts it, without doing anything for themselves but to harden their hearts, aggravate their guilt, and increase their condemnation. Number two, there are few things which exert a more unfavorable influence upon the piety of our churches than the mixed marriages between those who are professors of religion and those who are not, in which it must be acknowledged and regretted, are in the present day lamentably common. The operation of such unions on the state of religion, so far as regards the parties themselves, need be no mystery to any one. When two individuals of different tastes, in reference to any manner, are associated, and one of them has an aversion, or even an indifference to the pursuit of the other, it is next to impossible for the one so opposed to sustain with vigor and perseverance his selected course of action. And then if he cannot assimilate the taste of the other party to his own, he must for the sake of harmony give up his cherished predilections. This applies to no subject with such force as it does to religion. Every Christian man carries in his own heart and encounters from surrounding circumstances sufficient resistance to a life of godliness without selecting a still more potent foe to piety in an unconverted wife or husband. Conceive of either party in such an unsanctified union continually exposed, if not to the actual opposition yet to the deadening influence of the other. Think of a religious wife, to put it in the mildest form, not persecuted indeed, though this is often the case, by an irreligious husband, but left without the aid of his example, his prayers, his cooperation, hindered from a regular attendance upon many of the means of spiritual grace, which she deems necessary for keeping up the life of godliness in her soul obliged to be much in a sort of company for which he may have no taste, yea, a positive aversion, and to engage in occupations which he finds it difficult to reconcile to her conscience or harmonize with her profession, hearing no conversation and witnessing no pursuits but water of the earth, earthly, ridiculed perhaps for some of her conscientious scruples, and doomed to hear perpetual sneers cast upon professors for their inconsistency.
or what is still more ensnaring, constantly exposed to the deleterious influence of an unvarying but at the same time unsanctified amiableness of disposition in her husband, whose lack of piety seems compensated by many other excellences. It is likely, unless there be a martyr-like piety, that amid such trials she will continue firm, consistent and spiritual, will she not? It possessed only of the average degree of piety, relax, by little and little, till her enfeebled and pliable profession easily accommodates itself to the wishes and tastes of her unconverted husband. But perhaps the influence on religion generally is still worse. When the husband is a professor, and the wife is not, worse, because he is more seen and known, has more to do with church affairs, has greater power over others, and therefore may be supposed to be more injurious or beneficial accordingly as his personal piety is more or less vigorous and consistent. When such a man unites himself with a female whose tastes and habits are opposed to spiritual religion, who is fond of gay company and fashionable amusements, and would prefer a party or a rout to a religious service, who feels restless, uneasy, and discontented in religious society and occupations, who has no love for family devotion, and is often absent from the morning or evening sacrifice. Is it likely that the husband of such a woman will long retain his consistency, his fervor, his spirituality? Will he not, for the sake of connubial happiness, concede one thing after another, till nearly all the more strict forms of godliness are surrendered, and much of its spirit lost. His house becomes a scene of gaiety. His children grow up under maternal influence. His own piety evaporates, and at last he has little left of religion but the name. And now what is his influence likely to be upon others? What families usually spring from such marriages? And what churches are by a still wider spread of mischief formed by them? This practice is ever going on before our eyes, and we feel unable to arrest it. It was never more common than at this time. Notwithstanding the protests which have been lifted up against it, the evil is continually spreading, and while it too convincingly proves a low state of religion amongst us, is an evidence of the truth of the last particular, that our present practice of the admission of persons to membership is far too lax. Too few of the female members of her churches would refuse an advantageous offer of marriage on the ground of the lack of religion in the individual who makes a proposal. And how many of the opposite sex would allow their conscience on the same ground to control their fancy and give law to their passions? Can we wonder that there should be little intense devotion in our churches in such a state of things as this? How can we look for earnest piety when such hindrances as these are thrown in the way of it? Honorable and noble exceptions, I admit, there are. Among others, one especially have I known where a female, by consenting to marry an ungodly man, could have been raised with her fatherless children from widowhood solicitude suspends a comparative poverty to wealth, ease, and grandeur, 
but where with martyr-like consistency she chose rather to struggle on for the support of herself and her children, with a smile of conscience and of God to sustain her noble heart, than to accept the golden bait under the frown above. But how few are there who would thus account the reproach of Christ greater treasure than all the riches of Egypt? It is difficult to know what to do with this evil. Some churches make it a matter of discipline, and expel the member who marries an individual that is not a professor. This is a well-known practice of the Quaker body, and also of some of the churches of the congregational order. There are objections, however, against this, which I have never yet been able to surmount. A member, whether suspended or excommunicated, can never be restored except upon a profession of penitence. Now, though in this case there can be no reformation since a married cannot remarry, there may be a repentance, yet it is a delicate affair, as affecting his wife, to bring a man to say he is sorry he ever married, unless indeed we separate by a refined abstraction the act of marrying an ungodly person from his act of marrying this particular woman. Instances may occur and have occurred in my own pastorate of so very flagrant a nature, indicating so total a lack of all sense of religious truth, feeling and propriety, is to warrant, and indeed require a church to extend the party who has thus violated every rule of scripture and of common decorum. In all cases of this description, the pastor is called upon to interfere before the connection is fixed. If he has an opportunity to do so, he should point out the inconsistency in the church member to peril that must inevitably ensue to the soul, and the all but uniform and considerable unhappiness that attends such marriages. And in the case of such flagrant impropriety as I have last mentioned, let him candidly state the probability of exclusion from the church. Number three, I may mention as the next hindrance to earnest piety, the taste for amusement by which the present day is perhaps characterized more than most, which have preceded it. Every age has had its source of pleasure and its means and methods of diversion to relieve the mind from the fatigue and oppression of the more serious occupations of life. The human mind cannot be kept always upon the stretch, nor can the heart sustain without occasional relief its burden of care. And we would not rob the soul of its few brief holidays, nor condemn as irrational or unchristian its occasional oblivion of worldly vexations amidst the beauties of nature or the pleasures of the social circle. There is a time to laugh as well as to weep. It is highly probable that, with the advance of civilization and of the arts and sciences, man, instead of rendering himself independent of the lighter amusements, will actually multiply them. And it must be admitted that modern taste has, by its elegance, supplanted some of the gross carnality and vulgar joviality of former days. There is an obvious reformation and elevation of popular amusements. The low taste for brutal sports is, we hope, supplanted by a higher kind of enjoyment, which, if not more Christian, is at any rate more human and rational, and this is something gained to morals, even where the improvement does not go on to religion. Still, it may be seriously questioned whether among professing Christians, the propensity for entertainments has not been growing too fast. 
and ripened into something like a passion for worldly pleasures. Dinner parties among the wealthier classes of professors had become frequent and expensive, often very costly, in wines the most various, or set forth with a profusion which prove it what an outlay the entertainment has been served up to gratify the vanity of the host and the palate of his guests. There is an interesting incident in point mentioned in the life of Thomas Scott, the Bible commentator, which I shall here introduce as showing the light in which that eminent man viewed this subject. I am not quite sure I have not introduced it in one of my other works, but if I have, it will bear repetition. For some time I had frequent invitations to meet dinner parties formed of persons professing religion, he writes, and I generally accepted them, yet I seldom returned home without dissatisfaction and even remorse of conscience. One day, it was the Queen's birthday, I met at the house of a rational opulent tradesman, a large party, among whom were some other ministers. The dinner was exceedingly splendid and luxurious, consisting of two courses, including every delicacy in season. Some jokes passed upon the subject, and one person in particular, a minister of much celebrity, said, If we proceed thus, we shall soon have the gout numbered among the privileges of the gospel. This passed off very well. But in the evening, the question being proposed on the principal dangers to which evangelical religion is exposed in the present day, when it came my turn to speak, I ventured to say that conformity to the world, among persons professing godliness, was the great danger of all. One thing led to another, and the luxurious dinner did not pass unnoticed by me. I expressed myself as cautiously as I could, consistently with my conscience, but I observed that however needful it might be for Christians and superior stations to give splendid and expensive dinner to their worldly relations and connections, yet when ministers and Christians met together as such, it was not consistent, but should be exchanged for more frugal entertainments of each other and more abundant feeding of the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. Perhaps I was too pointed, and many strong expressions of disapprobation were used at the time, but I went home as one who had thrown off a great burden from my back, rejoicing in the testimony of my conscience. The consequence was a sort of tacit excommunication from the circle, the gentleman, at whose house has passed, never invited me again, but once, and in our dinner was literally a piece of boiled beef. He was, however, a truly pious man, though misled by bad examples and customs. He always continued to act towards me in a friendly manner, and though I had not seen him for several years, he left me a small legacy at his death, end quote. There are few who will not be of opinion that Thomas Scott's rebuke would have been conveyed with more propriety had it been administered privately when it would manifest all the fidelity without any of the seeming rudeness with which it was given. Yet, how convincingly does it prove the clearness of his perception of what is right, the tenderness of his conscience, and shrinking back from what is wrong? and the strength of his moral courage in reproving what he deemed to be a fault, 
What would Thomas Scott have said of a professor of religion exhibiting two and thirty different sorts of wine upon his table and sideboard at the same time? But it is not to dinner parties so much as the evening rout. It is becoming the prevailing custom and the snare of modern Christians when large assemblages are convened, comprising pious and worldly, grave and gay, young and old, not to enjoy the feast of reason and the flow of soul, not perhaps even to be regaled by the pleasure of music, but by the amusement of the song and the dance, when large expenses incurred, late hours are kept, and everything but is spirit-friendly to religion is promoted. It is this kind of social amusement, the fashionable, full-dress, evening party, carried to the extent of entire conformity to the world, and frequently resorted to, it is injurious to the interests of vital godliness in our Christian churches. But even where there is not this extreme of gaiety and a somewhat more sober aspect is thrown over the circle, yet, when the winter passes off in a round of evening assemblages for no higher occupations than music and singing, it is an occupation scarcely congenial with a religious taste, or friendly to the promotion of religious improvement. I have known young people, professors of religion too, who have related with gleeful boasting, as if this were the element in which they delighted to live, the number of evenings during one winter they have passed in company, and in such occupations as have been just alluded to. Now it may be, and it is extremely difficult, and no one would attempt to solve the problem, to determine what kind of parties and what number of them are compatible with true godliness, so that when the rule for this kind and this number of entertainments is transgressed, the religion of the individual is questionable, or must be injured. We can only lay down general principles, leaving the application of them to individual judgment. There are no doubt persons of such strength of real inrooted piety of such strong devotional taste, and such fixed habits of godliness, did they could pass unhurt through a constant round of seemingly dissipating amusements, just as there are persons of such strong constitutions and such robust health, did they can breathe a tainted atmosphere, or even take some kinds of poison without injury. There is a most striking instance of this lately published by the Bishop of Oxford in the life of Lady Goldafine who preserved not her own personal purity, but an unusual degree of spirituality and heavenly-mindedness. Amidst the endless gaieties and the revolting licentiousness of the court of Charles II, in reference to which we can only say to the pure, all things are pure, Titus 1 verse 15. But most certainly the average piety of our day is not of such robustness as to be able to resist strong contagion. The very craving after diversion, which there is in some person shows a morbid state of the soul, it might be supposed, judging from the representations of true religion which we find in the Word of God, and from the general principles contained in them, as well as from the recorded experience of the saints, which is to be found in religious biography, that a Christian, one who really is such, has been rendered independent of all such sources of enjoyment as those to which the people of the world resort, 
It might have been concluded that in a peace that passes understanding, to joy unspeakable and full of glory, in the rejoicing and hope of the glory of God, he had found not only a substitute for the gratifications which by becoming a Christian he had surrendered, but an infinite compensation, and that he would deem it a disparagement of his religious privileges to suppose that anything more than these were necessary for his felicity, or that if an addition were needed, an adequate one could not be found in healthful recreation amidst the scenery of nature, in the pleasures of knowledge or the activities of benevolence. To hear all this talk, then, about the necessity of entertainment, and the impossibility of relieving the urgency of labor, in a monotony of life without parties, routes, and diversions, sounds very like a growing weariness of the yoke of Jesus Christ, or a complaining, as if the church's paradise were no better than a waste, howling wilderness, which needed the embellishments of worldly taste, and all the resources of human heart, to render it tolerable, or which in fact must become little better than a fool's paradise to please a degenerate Christian. The growing desire after amusements marks a low state of religion, and it is likely to depress it still lower. It is a profession of a Christian that he is not so much intent upon being happy in this world, it's upon securing happiness in the next, that he is rather preparing for bliss than possessing and enjoying it now and that he can therefore be very well content to forgo many things in which the people of the world see no harm, and the harm of which it might be difficult for him, if called upon for proof, to demonstrate, and which he is willing to abstain from, just because he appeared to him to take him off from those pleasures which await him, and for which he is to prepare in the eternal world. Number four, the spirit of trade is that it's now carried on as no less adverse to a high state of religion than the spirit of amusement. And like that, it's all the more dangerous because of the impossibility of assigning limits within which the indulgence of it is lawful, and beyond which it becomes an infringement of the law of God. Our chief danger lies in those things which become sins only by the degree in which an affection or pursuit, not wrong in itself, is carried on such as covetousness, pleasure-taking, and attention to the business of life. These all originate in things lawful in themselves, and which are sinful only by excess. Fornication and adultery, falsehood, robbery, and other vices are all so marked out and so marked off from the region of what is lawful that the line of division is distinctly perceptible. And we can see at once when we are approaching the point of prohibition, and when we have stepped over it. But we cannot say this of worldly mindedness. The love of acquisition and appropriation is one of the instinctive principles of our nature, planted in it by the hand of God, and intended to subserve the wisest and most beneficent purposes. The whole fabric of society is founded upon it and all social organization is regulated by it. Employment may be said to be of God's appointment, if not directly, yet by the law of labor under which we are placed, and we cannot do without it. But then, like every other good, it may be abused and become an evil, 
It may exert so engrossing an influence over the mind as to absorb it, and to exclude from it the consideration of every other subject. It must never be forgotten that the rule is binding upon us all to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6, verse 33, to overcome the world by faith, to set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. It just is as truly law now as it ever was, and no attention to things seen or temporal, no labor even to provide things honest in the sight of all men, much more to provide things abundant and luxurious for ourselves, can release us from the obligation of a supreme regard to things unseen and eternal. Now there never was in the history of the world an age or a country in which a spirit of trade was more urgent than it is in this land, and in our day. We are the greatest trading, manufacturing, and commercial country, not only that now is, but that ever was. By the way, John Angel James lived in England. Tyre, Carthage, Phoenicia, and Phineas were more peddlers compared with Britain. Ours is a mart of nations, the imperium of the world. Such a state of things affects us all. Scarcely any stand so remote from the scene of busy activity as not to feel the impulse. And the cash, the spirit, all push into the contest for wealth. All hope to gain a prize of greater or less value. Education has raised up many from the lower walks. And wealth has attracted down many from the higher walks. To the level of the trading portion of the community. While population... It's as natural in such a state of things has gone on increasing. What is the result? Just what might have been expected. A keen and eager competition for business beyond any former precedent. Every trade, every profession, every branch of manufacture or of commerce seems overstocked. And every department of action overcrowded. See what must then follow. Your time is so occupied that men have scarcely an hour in a week for thoughtfulness, reading the Bible, and prayer. The head and heart and hands are so full of secular manners that there is no room for God, Christ, salvation, and eternity. Competition is so keen and eager that to get business, to whatsoever things are true and just and honest and lovely, and of good report, are trampled underfoot, and conscientiousness is forgotten or destroyed. If these efforts are successful, and wealth flows in, and the tradesman rapidly rises in society, then he is perhaps destroyed by prosperity. In addition to all this, what an inconceivable amount of mischief has been inflicted by the gambling system of speculation which no not set up has been stimulated by the railway schemes. While multitudes have plunged into the gulf of perdition, which yawns beneath those who have taken up the resolution of the men that will be rich, and who are determined to encounter the many foolish and hurtful lusts which beset their path, religion becomes a flat, insipid, and abstract thing amidst all the excitement produced by such pursuits. Even the Sabbath day hardly serves his purpose as a season of respite and repose. 
given to arrest eagerness of pursuit after wealth, and to loosen for a while the chain that binds man to earth, and it's passed with an impatience that says, When will it be over, that we may buy and sell and get gain? Amos 8 verse 5 Of what use are sermons to those whose minds and hearts are intent upon their speculations or their business, and even the voice of prayer which calls them into the presence of God, calls them not away from their secularities. The Father's house has made a house of merchandise, and the Holy of Holies a place of traffic. As soon might you expect a company of gamblers to lay down their cards, and with the stakes yet undecided before their eyes, listen with attention to a homily or a prayer, some professing Christians to join with reverence in the devotions of the Sabbath, or to hear with interest the voice of the preacher, the spirit of trade, that's carried on as flattening the religion that is left, and is preventing more from being produced. The great object of life to those professing Christians who have the opportunity seems to be to become rich. Their chief end does not appear to be so much to glorify God and enjoy him forever as to obtain and enjoy the world. Wealth is the center of their wishes, the point to which their desires appear to preserve and invariably tend. How many who have named the name of Christ and avouched him to be all their salvation and all their desire still make gold their hope and say unto fine gold, You are my confidence. Job 31 verse 24 Jehovah is the God of their creed, but Mammon is the God of their hearts. Part of one day only they profess to worship in the sanctuary of religion, and all the other six days of the week they are devout adorers of the God of wealth. Professing Christians, it is this worldly spirit that blights your hopes, that chills religion to the very heart, that withers your graces, that poisons your comforts, and blasts the fair fame of your Redeemer's kingdom, while the Spirit pervades the professing people of God, vital godliness will not only be low, but will remain so. How can it be otherwise than that the church will appear covered with the dust of the earth, and robbed of her heavenly glory, while there are few to weep over the woes of Jerusalem, few who struggle for her prosperity? who are affected by her reproach, or are jealous for her honor. Let us then be duly impressed with the fact that in this country and in this age, trade is continuing with religion for the universal dominion over men's minds, hearts, and consciences, and that according to present appearances, there is no small danger of the victory being gained by the former Christians. Take alarm.